Today I am continuing a series that I started talking about how to stay positive in a negative world. And I tell you, this is blessing me. I don't know if any of you are getting blessed by it, but it helps me. You know, this is something I have to deal with. Because again, you know, I'm just like all the rest of you that I, I hear all of these things that are going on, the terrible reports and about how it seems like that Christians are just being pushed to, you know, the back of the bus. We're being treated, we're the only segment of society that it's okay to discriminate against. And, you know, you could just get really negative. And especially coming through all of this presidential election season where they're pointing out, each side is pointing out all of the other problems and they're talking about the future of America and it's all dismal and bleak. If you aren't careful, this will steal your joy. And Satan, if he can get you discouraged, well then, not only do you suffer, but God isn't able to flow through you. I used a number of scriptures so I've been talking about this. I want to take some things about Abraham and share with you about Abraham and how Abraham was able to stay positive. You know, there's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 13, I believe it's verse 12, that says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. And that is saying that if you have hope, hope is just an anticipation of good in the future. And if your hope is deferred, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily completely destroyed, but just deferred if it's put off. If you are looking for something good to happen and it doesn't happen in the time that you think that it should, it tends to make your heart sick is what the scripture says. And so I think that many of us, when we're talking about how to stay positive in a negative world, many of us are having our hope deferred. We're praying for change in our own personal life, maybe your own personal healing, your own personal finances. As a nation, we're praying for change in our nation. We're praying for godliness. We're praying for this and that. And if you see those things deferred and put off, it just tends to make your heart sick. Well, knowing that, look at Abraham. And Abraham is a man that God called and told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees where all of his family lived, where all of his relatives were, all of their roots were put down there. And he told them to leave there and just depart and leave all of his father's house, all of his brethren, and God would lead him into a land that he would later inhabit. And did you know Abraham did not do this correctly? He didn't just obey immediately. He did leave, but he left with his father and he left with his nephew. He didn't follow the exact instructions. As a matter of fact, let me just turn over here to Genesis and read some of this to you so you won't just be taking my word for it. But in Genesis chapter uh, 11, at the end of the chapter, is where it gives the genealogy of Abraham. And then it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. If you only read this from Genesis' account, you might think that he spoke to Abraham when they lived in Haran. The chronology on this is that when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham left with his father and with nephew, with his nephew Lot, and they moved to a place called Haran, and they stayed there until Abraham's father, Terah, died. And then in chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy father's 
and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. If you only read this account, you might think it was when they lived in Haran that he uh, got this word from God about coming out and leaving his father's house. But when you put this together with Acts chapter 7 where Stephen was recounting this whole thing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was given divine inspiration, it says that God spoke to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees and told him to do this. And so by putting these things together, you can see that Abraham didn't really obey completely. He did leave, but his father came with him and his father stayed alive and they lived in Haran. It doesn't say for how long, but anyway, it delayed the things that God wanted to do in Abraham's life. And even after his father died and Abram left Haran and began to come into the land of Canaan, he still had his nephew Lot with him. And it was in Genesis chapter 14 where they finally separated. And after they separated, well, then God came to Abram and increased the blessing and the promises that he had made unto him. So my point is that Abraham didn't do everything just perfectly. And, you know, this is encouraging to me because I've never done anything perfectly in my life. Amen. You don't either. You may think you do, but none of us are just perfect. And God has never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. God only has imperfect people to use. And praise God for His mercy and grace that goes beyond our mistakes and, and blesses us in spite of ourselves. But see, there's some people that when your hope is deferred, if you will allow it, this could make your heart sick. Proverbs 13, 12. And so here's Abraham who came out and God had spoken unto him, but his, God's promises to Abraham did not happen immediately. There was a long period of time. As a matter of fact, I can't say thus saith the Lord on this, but I've gone back and through a lot of different study, and I'm not going to take time to do all of this. I think that Abraham might have been as young as 35 when the Lord first spoke to him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and he was around 75. Now, it is clear that he was 75 when the Lord finally spoke to him and told him about that he was going to have a son out of his own bowels that would come from him and that that would be the way that the promise went on. And so this could have been as much as 40 years from the time that God first spoke to him. I'm not going to say thus saith the Lord on that, but certainly it was decades from the time that God first spoke unto him until the promises became clear of what God was going to do. And then, even after Abraham entered into the land of Canaan, he was 75 when that happened. And when he actually had the promised seed, Isaac, he was 100 years old. And so that is 25 years for certain, and there could be as much as certainly another decade, but possibly as much as 40 years tacked onto that. If that 40 years was correct, which again, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord on that, that could have been as much as 65 years from the time that God first started speaking to Abraham until he saw the promise of the promised seed being born. And even after that, it says over here in Hebrews chapter 11, this whole thing is summarized in Hebrews talking about Abraham. And so 
rather than having to go and take multiple scriptures in the Genesis account and put them all together. It's just summarized over here in the book of Hebrews. And it's talking about Abraham and it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And that's talking about specifically Abraham and Sarah, if you read the verse in front of it. And so they did not see these promises come to pass in their own life. Now they saw the promised son, Isaac, born unto them, and so they saw the fulfillment of that. But as far as inheriting this land, did you know Abraham lived to be 175 years old? And if you take the most conservative estimate that he was 75 when God first spoke to him, he lived to be 175. So that's 100 years of seeking God and he saw some things come to pass, but he never saw a complete fulfillment of what God had spoken unto him. And again, I refer back to Proverbs 13, 12, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Many of you have experienced what I'm talking about. And because God has promised you something and you haven't seen it come to pass, man, you get discouraged. You get weary over a period of time. How do you stay positive when you see your hope, either for your personal life or for your nation or for, you know, the kingdom of God, and you, you don't see all of these things come to pass? How do you keep yourself encouraged? Well, let me just say that I've got a teaching on this entitled The Four Keys to Staying Full of God. You can go to our website. You could call into our helpline and they could help direct you to that. But that teaching was specifically given to help you maintain your faith over a prolonged period of time against the discouragement and against all of the things in life that get in the way when God promises you something. And so that would be a tremendous resource. I'm not going to teach on that right now, but I, I, that's one of my favorite things. And I tell you, by the grace of God, I can truthfully say this, that over 44 years since God has touched my life, I have had discouraging things happen. I've been sometimes stronger than others and things like that. But I have never given up hope. I have never just totally been discouraged and depressed. I've been able to maintain my enthusiasm and my focus and my momentum. And I'm not saying that bragging on myself. I'm bragging on Jesus and His Word works. And you do not have to be like a yo-yo that's just up and down and constantly in and out of faith and things like this. You can live a life of faith. It says the just shall live by faith. They don't just visit there. They don't just go there on weekends. They just don't go through periods where they're walking in faith and then they go through great periods of discouragement. No, you can live by faith. You can live there. You can dwell there. And so Abraham was able to maintain his faith at the most conservative estimate for a hundred years, never seeing the exact fulfillment of everything God prophesied to him. And if you go by that statement I was making that he could have been 35 years old when God first spoke to him, then it could have been as much as 140 years that he maintained his faith and never saw the fulfillment of those things. Man, there's a tremendous example here. So how did he do it? Well, let's just go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and keep reading. In verse 13, I already read that. And they, uh, 
Uh, let's just go back and read that. Verse 13 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Now what is this talking about? They didn't actually see it with their physical eyes. They never did see the fulfillment of him owning that land and it being his descendants and a nation that is as great in number as the stars in the sky or as the grains of sand on the seashore. Abraham never saw that with his physical eyes. But here's some of the keys. They saw them afar off, not with their physical eyes, but with their heart. In their heart, they saw God's promises coming to pass. Now, this is super, super important. I've got another teaching that goes along with this, talking about your imagination. And some people don't like to even discuss imagination. They think that's stuff for kids. But whether you know it or not, you have an imagination, and it really dictates what goes on in your life. If you can't see things on the inside, you'll never see them on the outside. If you can't see yourself healed you will never see yourself healed with your physical eyes. If you have received the words of the doctor and all of the, you know, the statements about what this disease causes and that you're going to be invalid or crippled or dead, and if you see those things, if that's the image that you have on the inside, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I can unplug right here and just teach about imagination. I've got teaching on this, as I've already said. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But you cannot move differently than the image you have on the inside on a consistent basis. You might be able to do it briefly, but your life will go the direction of your dominant thought and the way that you see things. If you see yourself as a failure, you may have talents and abilities and you could be put in a position where you could just flourish and you have the physical skills and ability. But if you see yourself as a failure... If you have a negative attitude, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy and you will find a way to destroy yourself and make things work out bad. You know, there's people that do this in relationships all of the time because of past experiences, maybe previous marriages and just things that have gone wrong. They've developed this mindset that nothing ever works for me, that it just can't work. And you may have a marriage where in the natural you're compatible, things should work, and yet you just know that it's going to fail. You are full of fear. You see yourself failing. You see your marriage failing. And if you have that mindset, you will fail. You've got to change that. You've got to begin to start seeing things. Just This is how Abraham and Sarah were able to come against the despair and the hopelessness, the discouragement that destroys so many people because they never saw these things come to pass in their lifetime. They never saw full fulfillment, but it says that they saw them afar off. First of all, they received the promises. See, I'm not talking about you just sitting down and daydreaming and thinking whatever you want to and you trying to come up with some positive image of your life and how it's going to work. There's some people that do that. You know, you will hear some people think that you've got to visualize world peace and that you've got to visualize these things. The reason I disagree with that is because they aren't taking the promises of God and visualizing God's Word coming to pass. They're just doing their own dreams. 
they just want a million dollar mansion and so they're going to visualize this and just go for things and they may be visualizing uh, taking another person's wife to their wife. They may be visualizing them being this mogul that God didn't create them to be. That may not be his will for them. So I disagree with the thought that, you know, you, it, you can just visualize and think positive and everything will come to pass. No, you have to take the promises of God. You have to receive them and then base all of your imagination and the things that you're seeing with your heart. You have to base it on what God's Word says, not just your own lust and desires. You may lust to be a rock star, but that may not be God's will for you. And it doesn't matter how much you visualize it. If it's not God's will, it's not going to come to pass. So notice it says that they received the promises, but they saw them afar off. They didn't see the physical fulfillment of these promises, but they got the promises from God and then they saw them coming to pass in their heart. How can you see something that you can't see? Well, the answer to that is you see it with your heart. It says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it talks about... Uh, matter of fact, let me just turn over and read this because I'm not sure that I quote the entire thing exactly the way it's supposed to be. But 2 Corinthians chapter 18 is the Apostle Paul speaking about all of the hardships that he endured. And he said in verse 4, uh, 17 that they're just a light affliction. And then in verse 18 he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so anything that you can see with your eye is temporary. It's subject to change. But things that you can't see are eternal. And this is talking about spiritual truth, spiritual things. And Paul here is saying that we are looking at things that cannot be seen. You know, to many, many people today, this, these words are just lost on them because they're so carnal. And by carnal, I'm saying that they are so controlled by what they see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. their five senses that they can't see with their heart. There's a lot of people today that I mean they are just totally dominated by their five senses and they just can't see anything by faith. But Paul said that he saw things that he couldn't see with his natural eyes. And the things that you can't see are more real more reality than the things that you can see. That just goes against our complete culture today who is so focused and fixated on just carnal, natural things. But that's what Paul said. And then over here in Hebrews chapter 11, I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. I don't know that anybody knows. But who, the writer of Hebrews was talking about Abraham and said that he saw things that he never saw with his eyes. He saw them afar off. He saw them in the future. You know, I've used this illustration many times, but the current building that we're in, we're in the process of building a new facility for our Bible school up at the sanctuary in Woodland Park. But eight years ago, we moved into this facility. As a matter of fact, it was just about this time. It was November of 2004. We moved into this facility, and uh, before we moved into it, there were no guarantees it was ever going to get done. The Lord had told me to do it debt-free, and I committed to doing that. And in the natural, I sat down and figured up that the way we had been uh, saving money and had been able to get money, you know, put aside above our normal operating expense, it would have taken me over a hundred years to finish out this building debt-free. 
And yet we did it in 14 months. It was a miracle. And we did it debt-free. $3.2 million renovation, debt-free in 14 months. It was a praise the Lord. And here are some of the things that I did. Just like what Abraham, he didn't, he couldn't see it with his physical eye, but he saw it through his heart. He saw the promises of God far off. And this, these are some of the things that I did. We actually had the uh, builder contractor put down tape on the floor where every wall was supposed to be. And then where there was going to be a door, we would have him angle the uh, duct tape out, you know, so that I could tell it was a door. And I mean, I would spend hours walking this place. And instead of just stepping over this tape, I would see these walls here. I saw every door. I would go and imagine myself opening a door. And Jamie, we were talking about this the other day, and she remembers how that she would be walking through here with me and she'd step over some tape. And I said, now you walk through a wall. No, come over here and go through the door. And you know, in, in a way, I was role-playing or make-believing, some people would say. But you know what I was doing? I was helping my imagination. I walked through this building and I mean hundreds, thousands of times, I saw this building built, debt-free. I saw it. And you can do things like this. You can focus. You can make yourself focus on the promises of God and see you healed instead of sick. See you prosperous instead of poor. See you succeeding instead of failing. You can see yourself being an extrovert instead of an introvert. I'm not talking about you just choosing anything you want. You have to take the promises first. You have to make sure that the things you are imagining and seeing are based on the Word of God. But this is what Abraham and Sarah did. This is how they kept from being overwhelmed and having their heart made sick because of the things around them not lining up with their vision. First of all, you have to receive the promises and then you see them afar off. This is not talking about with your physical eyes, but you see it with your heart. And then the next thing it says, and we're persuaded of them. You know, I could literally take days teaching on this one thing, but you've got to persuade yourself. There's a lot of people that know the promises of God that can quote the scripture that by the stripes of Jesus, you are healed and you can quote it and you know it, but you aren't persuaded of it. There are many of you that are more persuaded by what the doctor has to say, by what the banker has to say, by what some critic of you has to say about something. And you are more persuaded of the negative than you are the positive. You have to become persuaded. That just means to remove all doubt, to convince yourself. And you've got to do things to convince yourself. And as we go on and talk about this, some of these other things in this list are, will help you to do it. But you have to convince yourself. You can't just wait on somebody else. You know, some of you have heard me talk about things and you know that I'm persuaded and that I believe this. But what I believe isn't going to change you unless you are persuaded. I prayed with a number of people just this last week who had severe problems, uh, pains and different things like this. And I mean, I remember a couple of people that had had pains for decades, had never been a single moment for decades without pain. And yet I prayed with them and 
instantly their pain was gone. These people, I had one person who didn't have the, um, I don't know, you, ligaments, cartilage or something in your knee. They said it was bone on bone. And they had severe pain. And I mean, they were just hobbling around and barely able to get around. And it had been this way for a decade or more. And I prayed with them and instantly the pain was gone. And they were able to move. And there was no pain. And you know what I told them? I said, now the devil and this pain left you because the devil knows I believe. I'm persuaded in what I'm praying. But I said, he's not sure if you totally believe it. And so he can come back and he can give you a pain. But that pain doesn't mean that you weren't healed. But rather it's just like Satan knocking on the door seeing if you'll open up and let him in. And I said, if you respond, if a pain ever hits you again and you respond by saying, oh no, I wasn't healed, or oh no, I've lost it and I've got the pain back. If that's the way you respond, you just threw the door open and you let the devil come in. But I said, if you will respond the way I did and rebuke this and resist it, James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I said, he will flee. And he may knock on the door a few times and give you something that looks like you weren't healed, but it's because he knows I'm persuaded. He's not totally sure you're persuaded. And see, this is what I'm talking about here. Abraham and Sarah, they had promises from God. They never saw the total fulfillment of those, but they saw them afar off through their heart. They saw them. And they were persuaded that it was going to come to pass. They had removed all doubt. They believed God. And this is what you've got to do. You've got to get promises. You've got to go to the Word of God and find out scriptures that deal with the negative things in your life or the negative things in our society. And you find these promises and then you see them. You meditate on it until you see it. I can't tell you how important that is. Most people just read the Bible and don't engage their imagination. You've got to see the Word of God coming to pass. When you read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, don't just read it, see it. Read it until you see it. Read it until you see Mary and Martha and their grief and you see these things. You know, again, I know that there's a lot of people that just, they don't think this way and they don't use their imagination in any constructive way. They only use it in a negative way. Some of you may say, well, I'm just not that kind of person. Oh, you are too. Everybody's got an imagination. And I can guarantee you, you can see things. You just see the negative instead of the positive. But there's a lot of people that read the Bible and they don't use their imagination. I remember when I was a kid reading about David fighting Goliath. And I read a couple of commentaries. Most people believe Goliath was about nine foot six, some all the way up to 12 or 13 foot. But I actually went out to a tree and I marked on that tree. I put a mark where nine foot six was. And then I bent down some because most commentaries believe that people at those days, you know, were five foot would have been tall. And so I bent down some and I looked up and I, you know what I was doing? I was helping imagining I was imagining these things and it helps me. I've got revelation about David fighting Goliath that some of you don't because you just read the Bible as a book and you don't use your imagination. I was on a tour to Israel and we were in a bus and it was a really hot day and we stopped in the Valley of Elah, the very place where David fought Goliath. 
And the tour guide said, here's where the battle took place. Does anybody want to get out? And I mean, there's nothing there. And there's just a little, they call it a stream in the Bible, but it's really dry. It didn't have any water in it. And nobody else wanted to get out. But I told that driver, I said, you just stop. I want to get out. And I walked out and I stood in that place. And with my imagination, I imagined all of the uh, Philistines on the mountain, all of the Israelites there. I went down to the brook and I got five smooth stones just like David did. And some people think, why do you do that? Because it helps me imagine. It helps me see things. And I can see that place where this took place. And because of that, I've got some revelation. I'm not going to teach on that right now. But you have to see things. And then you have to persuade yourself with what you're seeing by the Spirit and let it become more real to you than what you see with your physical eyes. I'm talking about how to be positive in a negative world. And I'm telling you, most people see the failure of this nation see the failure of Christianity. They see their own failure in the area of finances or physical or emotional relation. Most people see these things and are persuaded that this is coming to pass more than what God's Word says. And if you are going to be positive in a negative world, you're going to have to do what Abraham and Sarah did. You're going to have to take these promises and whether you ever see them with your physical eyes, you've got to see them in your heart And you've got to be fully persuaded. Paul said, I am persuaded that neither height, nor depth, nor length, nor breadth, nor nothing, no angels, no demons, nothing is going to ever separate me from the love of God. The last few verses of Romans chapter 8. And he says, I'm persuaded. Well, it's wonderful that Paul was persuaded, but it's not going to do you any good until you get persuaded. You have to see these things in your heart, and persuade yourself. And a lot of this comes down to just literally amount of time that you give to something. There's a lot of people that say, I don't have a quantity of time, but I have quality time that I spend with the Lord. I tell you what, you're going to lose the battle if you spend more time in the world being listening to the world, being dominated by the bad news of the world than you do spending time in the Word of God. It's not only quality time, it's got to be quantity time. You have to spend some time focusing on the promises of God, seeing these things with your heart, persuading yourself. I tell you, this is, this is powerful. If you would follow these things and do what I'm saying, I guarantee you it would turn you from the negative to the positive. The next thing it says right here, it says that they, were, they saw them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them. You know, when you embrace something, it, there's a difference when you just see a person and you say hi or something like that and when you go up and give a person a hug. This is talking about an intimacy. It's talking about a degree of relationship, an excitement, an enthusiasm that a lot of people don't share. You know, I've been gone for about 10 days or so, and I just took our car over to my son's house. He was working on his brakes and needed to use a car. So anyway, we took our car over there. And and anyway, I hadn't seen my granddaughter in about 10 days. And we knocked on the door and she came and opened that door and came running out and just embraced me and hugged me. You know, there's a difference between that and if she would have opened the door and says, Hi, Papa. 
That's what she calls me. And I would have liked either one of them. But you know what? I really like it when she's so excited. She runs and embraces you. And this is what it's talking about. That you need to love the things that God is saying. You need to be so persuaded that you embrace these things. You're passionate about it. So notice, you've got to have these promises. Even if you aren't seeing them at the moment fulfilled, you've got to have a promise from God. Then you've got to see it in your heart. And then you have to persuade yourself. You have to be fully persuaded. You have to embrace it. There needs to be some passion, some excitement, some zeal in your heart for the things of God. And then the next thing, and it says, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And you know, this is something that I could literally spend an hour talking about. I've done it many, many times. But Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of your tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If you are going to stay positive in a negative world, you've got to have promises. You've got to see them in your heart. Use your imagination. You've got to fully persuade yourself. You've got to embrace them. Be passionate about it. And then you've got to start speaking God's Word out of your mouth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's verse 33. It's either 32 or 33. It says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And so it's not only your words that have life and death, but every word that you hear is either ministering life or death. So you are going to have to start confessing the word and you're going to have to start turning off anything and everything that confesses things contrary to God's word. If you're going to stay positive in a negative world, you've not only got to use your tongue for constructive things, but you've got to quit letting other people speak death and doubt and negativism. Your words either release life or death. And sad to say, so many people are speaking negative about everything. You know, I'm not excited about all of these politics and stuff. And there's times that I could just get down and say, this person, it's terrible and how dare. And we, you could just go to speaking death. I don't put my head in the sand and ignore that we've got problems. But you know what? I really do refrain myself from just saying that, oh, we'll never succeed. If this person is elected, we're doomed. We'll never recover from this. I can understand how certain people can say those things. I've had some of those exact same feelings, but you know what? I don't speak them out my mouth. I am not going to speak that we're doomed. I'm not going to speak that we won't make it. And there are some of you that if you ever come down with some kind of a disease, you say things like, oh, this runs in my family and everybody has had this and it, uh, here's what happened. Everybody has died by the age of so-and-so and you'll sit there and you'll speak these things out of your mouth which are setting a trap for you as you approach that age. You don't need to say that. You need to quit speaking these negative things. Instead, Abraham and Sarah spoke things consistent with the promises that God had given them, what they saw in their heart, what they had been persuaded of, what they were passionate and they had embraced, and they spoke these things. Matter of fact, did you know one of the things that happened with Abraham, his name was Abram originally, which meant father. But Abram had trouble having children. And when he had this encounter with God in Genesis chapter 15, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. 
from father to a father of many nations. And he didn't even have any children. And so every time somebody says, what's your name? He was saying, I am the father of many nations. Did you know every time he confessed things that in the natural had not come to pass, but it was consistent with the promises of God, God renamed him. And I think one of the reasons was because every time somebody asked Abram his name, he says, I am Abraham. I am the father of many nations. And I mean, who knows, maybe multiple times per day, he confessed something. He gave him something to speak out of his mouth that was contrary to what he was seeing with his physical eyes, but was consistent with the promises of God. This is also why he told him, he says, if you can count the stars in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore, so shall your seed be. Why did he use those illustrations? Because Abraham didn't live in a house the way you and I did. He lived in a tent. He didn't have boots the way that I do. He wore sandals. And so every day he had to deal with dust on his feet. And every night sitting outside cooking his meal, he saw the stars in the sky. And so day and night he had a visible reminder in front of him. So this helped him to see the promises. And then every time he gave his name, he says, I am the father of many nations. And he kept this out in front of him. This is how you persuade your heart. This is how you stay positive in the midst of a negative world. You have to take the Word of God and listen to it more than you listen to the junk of the world. And then you have to go until you see the Word of God working in your life. Instead of meditating on the things that the doctor said, that the economics, the economists say, and instead of focusing on those things, you focus on the promise of God's Word and you see yourself prospering and healthy even when the doctor and the bankers are saying things contrary. You see with faith instead of just with your eyes. You persuade yourself by focusing upon these things. You embrace them. You get passionate about it. And then you use your mouth to say things consistent with what you believe instead of what you have. It says in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus was speaking about how he was able to do this miracle of causing a fig tree to die. He didn't touch it. He didn't throw salt on it. He didn't do anything in the natural. He spoke words. And his disciples said, Master, look what happened. And he said, have faith in God. In verse 23, he says, for verily, that means truly I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and doubt not in his heart, but believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus was talking about how to get your faith to work and he emphasized the importance of saying, of speaking. You've got to start speaking. And sad to say, most people who are praying and asking God to heal them, somebody will come up and say, how are you today? And they'll say, oh man, I'm sick. And they will speak what they feel. They will speak what the doctor says. They will speak what the prognosis is instead of speaking what God's Word says. You need to get to where you use your tongue to speak forth your faith. You know, when this economic downturn happened, I mean... Nearly every ministry, even a lot of spirit-filled, word-based, faith people begin to start speaking negative and speaking that, oh, it's a terrible time. Boy, we're struggling. They started making cuts. I can name a number of ministries right here in Colorado Springs. There's nearly 200 parachurch ministries 
in Colorado Springs, and many of them that I have knowledge about, they started making uh, salary cuts. They started laying off people. They decreased their budget by 15 to 25 percent before there was any fallout, just because of the prediction that were made. You know, the scripture says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And yet many people just, they believe that if the economics of the world goes down, then their income and their ministry has to go down. And they started planning for problems. They started speaking forth doubt. A number of ministers' meetings and stuff that I would have, everybody was talking about how terrible the times were going to be and how they were going to struggle and how are we going to make it through. You know what? I let the word, I stood on the word of God. The word of God says in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The word in, according to means in proportion to or to the degree of his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God is my source, not the United States economy. Now, am I denying that God uses people? No, but I'm saying I kept my faith in God and when everybody else was talking lack and inadequacy is when God told me to buy this new property in Woodland Park, the sanctuary. We're in the process of building $47 million worth of buildings to house an expanded CBC and all of the things we need to do. And I'm going to do it debt-free. Did you know in the natural... Everybody would have told me, you're crazy. You need to start planning for decrease, not increase. And on top of the building in, for the Karis Bible College campus in Woodland Park, I also made a huge expansion of our television outreach. And we added, I don't know, somewhere around $500,000 a month to our normal operating expense just in accommodating some um, uh, new television things. So it would have taken a huge increase just to house the television, much less to build $47 million worth of buildings debt-free. But you know what? I said that God is supplying my needs. God is my source. I am not limited by this economy. And even though there may be people that uh, are affected by it and that they decrease or something, God can bring other people in. We're going to do it. And I committed myself to a building program. We're doing it in two stages. The very first stage is what I'm calling the barn, the first building. It's about a 90,000 square foot building. And of course, we're going to go ahead and do the grading for the second building. And so, uh, you know, it's more than just the cost of that one building. But the first phase is about $20 million dollars. And did you know we're only we're less than five million dollars away from having that paid for a year in advance of the completion of that project? Now I hesitate to say that in some way because some people think, well, man, you don't need me to give. We're still four or five million dollars away, and so I do need people to give, and we need people to get behind this. And as soon as we get this finished, then we got to start on the second building. So I don't want you to interpret this as if we don't need people to still stand with us. But I'm using it as a testimony that during a downturn in the economy, when nearly every ministry that I'm aware of has taken a hit and has actually decreased their income, 
even some of them to the point that they laid off employees and they have come close to closing their doors and nearly going out of business. While that's happening across the board with most ministries, our ministry has more than doubled in the last three years during an economic recession. And I can tell you, a lot of it has to do with these exact principles. I stood on the Word of God instead of just going by what I heard other people say. I saw in my heart us succeeding when other people were seeing them failing and they were seeing limits. They were seeing decrease. They were seeing hard times. I didn't see that. I saw what the Word of God painted. I persuaded myself of these things by focusing on the Word of God and limiting all of the negative things. You know, and then I embraced them and then... I spoke the right things. You know, the scripture, let me use this verse over in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17. And if you're familiar with this passage, it follows Isaiah 50 chapter 53 that talks about Jesus and what he produced. And then chapter 54 is talking about all of the benefits of this new covenant that Jesus gave us. And it's talking about prosperity. You're going to break forth on the right hand and on the left, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, talking about expansion. It says that God will never be angry with you nor rebuke you. And it's just powerful, powerful promises that apply to us in the new covenant. And then you go down to verse 17 and it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Boy, there's a lot in that verse, but let me just point out. He says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And then immediately he says, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. I believe that there's a link there. He talks about weapons coming against you, and then immediately he talks about people who speak against you. Words are weapons. Again, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Not only life, but death also. And did you know that the things that people speak against you, the things that they speak against the nation, the things that they speak against your prosperity and against your health, these things are weapons. And you can't just let all of these weapons come against you without putting up your shield of faith and quenching them, according to Ephesians chapter 6. You need to recognize that words are coming against you. And it says that every word, every tongue that rises against you in judgment, that's talking about every negative word that comes against you trying to criticize your faith or stop you from receiving the things that God has promised you. It says, thou shalt condemn. I believe that this is a command, that if you don't want these words that are coming against you, these negative words about our nation, about your health, about the economy, about your marriage, about your ability, and all of the words that are spoken against us, if you don't want those words to have impact on you, then you have to condemn them. And I tell you, I find very few Christians who are even knowledgeable of this, and even the ones who are knowledgeable of it, they're timid and they're shy, and they won't stand up, and they won't speak against the words that come against their faith. You know, I taught our students this just this last week, that words are powerful. According to Proverbs 18, 21, they have either life or death in them, and they're like seeds. 
when a seed is planted, it immediately starts to germinate and starts to produce roots and starts taking a hold. And if you don't deal with it quickly, that thing will grow and it could become a huge oak tree that, man, it takes a huge effort to get that thing out and root it out. And I've learned this, that I've learned that words that come against my faith are seeds. And when I hear those things, those seeds immediately start to penetrate and get into my heart. And if I don't want to offend somebody, if I'm so worried about being politically correct and I don't want to offend anybody and I just, you know, smile and let those words go and don't say anything, then by the time I get by myself later that night or something, I have to spend 20 or 30 minutes countering that negativism and these words that were spoken against me. But I've learned that if when I hear unbelief, if when a weapon, a word that is a weapon that is formed against me, if it comes against me, if I'll condemn it right then, then it's just, it's like water off a duck's back. It never penetrates. It never gets inside of me. It never starts releasing its doubt and unbelief and it doesn't affect me. I have people say all kinds of negative things to me. Uh, you know, I, anyway, I could give you a lot of examples of this, but I'm, you know, when I drive in a car, uh, the way I get most of my news is I'll listen to a two or three minute broadcast on radio because I have an hour's drive back and forth from my house to my office. And I figure that they can't do very much damage. I can kind of find out what's going on in the world in two or three minutes and they can't say a lot of bad stuff. But even in that two or three minutes, they still speak bad stuff. And I, they'll come on and they'll say, it's flu season. And they're predicting the worst flu season. Or it's hurricane season and they're predicting the worst weather. Or they're predicting a drought. Or they will go on and they will start speaking words that if you allow those words, they will begin to start taking root on the inside of you and they will make you negative. Negative words produce negative beliefs. And you can ask my wife, we drive in and we're listening to a news broadcast and they'll begin to say, oh, it's a, they're predicting a worse than normal flu season. You better go get your flu shot. I won't let somebody say words like that without me countering them and condemning them. And I'll sit there and I'll say, no, not for me. There is no season when the word of God doesn't work. By his stripes, I am healed and I refuse to be sick. And I'll start speaking and condemning those words. If I have people come to me and attack me and say, well, I don't believe that what you're saying is going to work, I'll sit there and I'll start countering. I'll say, well, that may be what you believe, but here's what I believe, and I'll just go ahead and speak my faith and counter their negativism with my positive faith and belief. See, this is what Abraham and Sarah did. They were fully persuaded that what God had promised He could do. They embraced them. They became passionate I mean excited about the things of God and they begin to confess their faith. Every time that somebody says, what's your name? He says, I am the father of many nations before he, he even had a child. He was using his words to confess and speak forth the positive things instead of just rehashing and speaking forth the negative things of this world. Boy, that's powerful. So let me go back and read Hebrews eleven thirteen. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and, embra and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. 
In other words, through their confession and through the things that they did, they made it very clear that they were not just lined up and drinking the Kool-Aid of this world. They were not buying into these things. And likewise today, we need to declare plainly which side we are on. I find so many Christians that are afraid to take a side. They're afraid to say that this is right and this is wrong, lest they get politically criticized, you know, politically incorrect. You need to declare plainly which kingdom you are a part of. And then in verse 15, it says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Now, earlier in this teaching, I went through some things and showed how that God spoke to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, that he was supposed to leave his place and his family, his kindred, his brethren, and he was supposed to go out into a place that God would after reveal to him. So for Abraham to, it says here that if he had been mindful of the country from whence he came out, he might have had opportunity to have returned. The Lord told Abraham, don't go back. Don't you ever go back. And this was so foundational in Abraham's belief system that when it came time for his son Isaac to take a wife, he sent his servant back and he said, uh, you go back and you get a wife from there and you bring her here, but don't take my son back. And the servant says, but what if the woman won't follow me? Should I take your son back to introduce him to the uh, woman back in Ur of the Chaldees? And he says, under no circumstances, you never bring Isaac back here, back to Ur of the Chaldees. You keep him here. You keep him focused on what God told him to do. So Abraham shows through that that for him to go back to Ur of the Galdes, for him to even think about it, would have been wrong. This isn't what God called him to do. So with that in mind, read this again. It says, And truly, if he had been mindful of the country from whence he came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Opportunity to return would have been sin. It would have been temptation. So here's one of the things that God spoke to me through this verse. And this is one of the most powerful things that I've ever received from God. That your temptation is linked to what you think. Your opportunity to return, to go against what God has commanded you to do is linked directly to what you think. If you don't think on it, you can't be tempted with it. Temptation is linked to what you think. Now, that's a simple statement, but that is profound, and I can guarantee you most people do not believe that. Of course, most non-believers don't even care about it, probably have never thought about it. Even most Christians don't believe this because they will watch stuff that is contrary to all of your values. You will watch things where there's hatred, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's sexual content, there's adultery, there's fornication, uh, all kinds of things that violate all of your standards and you will use that stuff for entertainment. And yet, by you looking at it, by you being mindful of it, even thinking about these things, it automatically opens you up to temptation that you wouldn't have had if you had been ignorant about it. And you know, one of the classic examples of this in my life is that I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught Christian values. And because of that, I just adopted that I was going to live for God and that I wasn't going to commit adultery and I wasn't going to be a homosexual and I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to steal. I wasn't going to do all this stuff. And I had heard about 
things. I'm sure, I can't honestly remember, but I'm sure that I heard about prostitution. I'm sure that I heard about uh, all kinds of sexual immorality and stuff, but it wasn't for me and I rejected it and I never thought about it. I didn't read, I didn't look at pornography. I didn't get involved in the stuff that other people did. I shied away from those things. And so because of that, when I was 18 years old, I had this miraculous encounter with the Lord and I just fell in love with God. And I mean, just a few months after that, I was on a trip with my mother and we were headed to Europe to go to a Baptist conference that Billy Graham was putting on in Switzerland. And in the process, we stayed in New York City and my first night in New York City, here I was, this hick from Texas. I had never been in anything like New York City. I had never seen the things that I had seen. And I was out at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning just walking around with my mouth open looking at all of this stuff. A lot of it was very ungodly. And I was just shocked, but I was so naive, I honestly didn't know enough to get in trouble. You know, I didn't, I guess I had heard about gangs and uh, I had heard about Nikki Cruz's testimony, but you know, it wasn't something that I really was focused on. And so because of it, here at two o'clock in the morning, I was walking down the back alleys in New York City, downtown, passing out tracks and I'd see these gangs in alleys. And instead of me being afraid, I didn't even know enough to be afraid. I just thought, oh great, here's a group of guys. And I'd go up and pass them all out tracks and witness to them. And, uh, you know, I look back at it and it's a miracle that they didn't kill me. But I didn't know enough to be afraid. And I remember going on 42nd Street and Broadway and there must have been a hundred prostitutes lined up against this wall. And you know what? It never dawned on me that they were prostitutes. I just thought, man, here are a bunch of people that need to know about Jesus. And I went down the row, passing them all out tracks, and I witnessed to every one of them and was preaching to the whole group. They all broke up. The whole block cleared out. Amen. I emptied them. And while I was there, I had a guy come up to me who I later figured out was a pimp. And he was trying to sell me one of his girls. And he was using the vernacular of the street and he was talking about these things. And honestly, I never figured out what this guy was trying to do. And he talked to me uh, for two or three minutes. And finally, this guy just looked at me. And I remember him walking off. And he threw up his hands in the air like, like this and just shook his head. Like, what rock did this hit crawl out from under? And he just walked off. And I went back to my hotel room. And I explained to the guys what this guy that I was staying with, I explained to them what he was saying, and they had to explain to me that he was trying to get me to buy one of his prostitutes. I didn't know enough to even understand what he was talking about. But here's my point. Guess what? I wasn't the least bit tempted. If you can't think it, you won't be tempted with it. I didn't know enough to get involved in all of that. And I know some of you think, boy, you must be the only person in America that is that ignorant. Well, whatever. I'm just telling you that this is absolute true. I didn't think on those things and I honestly didn't know enough to even be tempted. I remember, you know, in high school when all of the dope became popular and they started talking about this. I didn't even know. I wouldn't have even known how to go and find any dope. I wouldn't have known how to buy any. I never even thought about that stuff. It wasn't for me. And 
I wouldn't have even known how to go about doing those kind of things. See, I get all of that from this verse, that you cannot be tempted with something you don't think on. If you are being tempted with sexual immorality, if you're being tempted with pornography and stuff, it's because you have thought on things that planted seeds in your heart, and that's the reason you're drawn in that direction. If God has told you to do something, like say, for instance, Abraham, he told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees. You know what most of us would have done? We would have left and had great hope but then when our hope was deferred, Proverbs thirteen twelve, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When you didn't see the promises of God just come to pass immediately, most of us would have got to thinking about, boy, back in Ur of the Chaldees, I really had it good. Man, that's where my family had been for generations. We had a mansion. We had everything going for us. I had friends. I had relatives. I wonder what's happening with my nieces and nephews. I wonder what's happened back there. I wonder about so-and-so. And you would have thought about those things and then wondered why you were so tempted to go back. But this says that Abraham and Sarah were not mindful of the country that they came out of and therefore they weren't even tempted to go back. If you would refuse to think on the negative things that this world is trying to focus your attention upon and instead you would only think upon the Word of God, then all you'd get is the positiveness and the faith and the joy and the peace and the power that comes with meditating on the Word of God. This is so simple. You've got to have somebody to help you to misunderstand what I'm saying. And yet I can guarantee you the average person does not follow this. You watch and think all kinds of things contrary to what God has told you. For instance, you will consider sexual things in a movie, on a television, things that are completely contrary to what God has told you to do. And you will watch that for entertainment. And then you will see somebody and all of a sudden you will have thoughts come to you and you'll wonder, why am I so tempted? Why are these things happening? Because you watch movies and shows that present it and present infidelity to you and you have those seeds planted on the inside of you. You could literally get to where you just focus on the Word of God. You love the person that God gave you. You meditate on them. You think about them. You don't lust after somebody else and you can get to a place where you aren't even tempted with that. And I know some of you right now think this is impossible because you live in just so much temptation. And yet many of you, if you're Christians, you are white-knuckling it, holding on, trying to resist it. Oh, God, help me not to be unfaithful to my mate. And the reason you're so tempted is because you watch and think so much stuff that's contrary. You read these little dime novels, or now they would be multiple dollar novels that has all of this sleazy stuff in it and sexual content. And in your mind, you fantasize about that and then wonder why you have thoughts of leaving your mate. You know, when Jamie and I got married, uh, again, we were raised in a very strict home and stuff, and there was some downside to that. But one of the positive sides is that we never, ever, ever considered divorce. Divorce was just off the table. When we got married, we committed to each other until death do we part. And I mean, there is no other thing. And even when we've had problems and we disagree or something comes up, you know what? We have never ever considered divorce. We might have thought of murder a few times, but divorce never, amen. 
That's a joke. Don't write in to me and tell me, criticize me over that. I'm just saying that, you know what, we've never considered divorce and because of it, we've never thought about it. I've never been tempted with divorce. We just make it work out. And yet there are some of you that see you come from a different background and there are actually people that write prenuptial agreements on how they will divide their assets and how they will deal with things if the marriage doesn't work out and they get a divorce. They entered into marriage with divorce as an option. And I can promise you, if you have it as an option, you will be pushed to consider it. There will be some time that this doesn't look like you're going the way you want it to. And if that's an option, if it's on the table, you will be forced to consider it. But you can get to a place to where, no, that's not for me. God told me that it's until death do you part, that let not man put it asunder. I am committed to this person forever and you just don't go there. You never think it. And if you never think about it, you will never be tempted with it. That is simple. But that is profound. And I tell you, you could simplify your life. You could take away a huge amount of temptation and problems in your life if you would just get so focused on God that you don't watch things, you don't read things, you don't listen to things that counter the principles that God has put down in His Word and the promises that God has given you about what to do. You just think in line with that. The sad thing is most of us are so tied into the world and the bad news that the world has to offer that we are very tempted with discouragement and frustration and fear and bitterness because there's just so much of it out there. We are going to have to become focused on God and get to where we meditate in the Word day and night if you want to stay positive in a negative world. Let me turn over to Romans chapter 7. This is still talking about Abraham. But here's Paul speaking about Abraham and using him as an example. And he says some powerful things here about how Abraham was able to maintain his faith and believe and see this great miracle come to pass of him having a child in his old age. So in Romans chapter 4 verse 18, it's speaking about Abraham and it says, "...who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And I'm going to continue to read some other verses, but let me just say some things. This, this verse has some powerful truths in it that apply directly about how to maintain your positiveness in the midst of a negative world. So it says here, who against hope believed in hope. In other words, when everything in the natural was hopeless... Uh, Abraham still believed God. He still hoped in God. That's powerful. Hope is an important part of you staying positive in a negative world. Hope, as defined in most dictionaries, is the anticipation of good, of positive things. If it was all negative things, you'd call that dread or anxiety or worry or care or something. But hope is specifically talking about that you are anticipating positive things in the future. I believe I could also say this, and I'm not going to take time to teach on all of it. You'll just have to accept this as andeology if you, uh, you want further verification. But I, in my study, I believe that hope is a positive faith and it's based on imagination. I believe that actually you could say that hope is a positive imagination. I've got another teaching on this. And it's really good, it, but I'm not going to take time to teach it here. But it in, hope involves your imagination. 
And I've already talked about some of this from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. I won't go back through that. But when it says that he against hope believed in hope. In other words, when things looked hopeless, when it looked like that Sarah had already gone through menopause. The, the Old Testament scripture says it ceased to be with her after the manner, manner of women. This means that her reproductive uh, systems had shut down. It was impossible for Sarah to have a child. And you know, in the natural, that means that all hope is gone. And yet Abraham and Sarah herself, it says that she received strength to be able to believe and conceive also. That's in Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it's verse 11 and 12. And so not only Abraham, but Sarah believed even after she had already gone through the change of life and it was impossible for her to have a child, she had a child. That's pretty awesome. And so they were still hoping when it was hopeless. And there are some of you that you look at things in the natural and you think, well, I'm just trying to be pragmatic. I'm just trying to be honest and to be sincere. You know, you need to learn when to quit and just write off that you've lost. And most people let the values of other people, the values of unbelievers, their criticism and stuff stop you and say it just can't be done. But I tell you, God specializes in doing the things that men can't do. And if you are going to stay positive in a negative world, you are going to have to get beyond just what the natural world says. And when they say that something is hopeless and when they say that all hope of ever changing this nation or changing your finances or changing your physical condition and you walking in hell, when the doctor says it's hopeless, you are going to have to hope when there is no hope. You're going to have to hope against hope. And how do you do that? Well, look at this. In that same verse, it says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. According to means to the proportion of or to the degree of this promise from God that said, so shall thy seed be. This goes back to Genesis chapter 15 and the Lord told Abraham to look up at the stars and count the stars that are in the sky or look down at the ground and count all of the grains of sand that are on the seashore. If you could number those things, so shall thy seed be. Five words. In other words, what we would say today, this is the word of God. This was God's word to Abraham. God promised him that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. So shall your seed be. And Abraham hoped because of the promise of God's word. If you are going to have hope in the midst of a hopeless situation, it's not going to come from the doctor. It's not going to come from the lawyer. It's not going to come from the news media. It's not going to come from some sleazy novel by watching the ungodly stuff that's on television. I tell you, hope comes through the Word of God. It says specifically in Romans ten seventeen. so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And I could spend a long time verifying this, but hope is the first step towards faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is like the thermostat that turns on the power unit. Faith is the power unit. Hope is what turns it on or off. If you don't have any hope, even though you had faith, it wouldn't work. If you do have hope, it activates your faith. It gets you to dreaming and believing. And so hope and faith are related. Therefore, 
If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, then hope comes by hearing the Word of God, having promises of God's Word. And that's exactly what this says. He hoped against hope uh, to become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, and this was the Word of God, to Abraham, so shall thy seed be. So if you are truly going to have hope, if you're going to be positive, which is what hope is, if you are going to be positive in the midst of a negative world, you are going to have to be in hope, and hope is based on having promises of God's Word. If I could talk to every one of you individually, you could tell me whatever your problem is. I don't care what your problem is. I have dealt with tens of thousands of people. They've asked me questions. And I firmly believe that regardless of what you're going through, there are promises in God's Word that would cause you to hope. There are promises that you are going to come out on top, that you will be above only and not beneath. And if I was talking to you personally, I could give you a scriptural promise to counteract any problem that you've got. I really believe that. And some of you may think you're hopeless, but there is nothing that you will ever encounter. There's no problem that could ever come your way that God hasn't already anticipated and He's already created the supply before you ever have the need. I know that's hard for us to think of because, again, most people operate only in this human level. They are looking at things like only a lost person does. But from God's standpoint, it's totally different. God has anticipated anything that could ever happen to any person on the face of the earth. And before you ever had your problem, God had the solution. And there are promises about your victory written in this book, the Bible. And so if you are going to have hope, which is absolutely necessary to stay positive in a negative world, hope is what caused Abraham to overcome. It was actually his faith, but hope is what began the process and motivated it. And it says here that it was according to that which was spoken. It was according to the Word of God. I'm telling you, if you want to stay positive and if you want to overcome, you are going to have to get to where you get in the Word of God and you know the, these promises. These promises are the antidote to all of the negativism that is in the word, world. The Word of God is super positive. Now, there's a lot of negative things in here showing the judgment of God upon people, showing people's failures, but it's always presented in a way that it's to teach you so that you can avoid these things. If you let the Holy Spirit use it, even the negative things in here, it makes you so thankful that praise God you see this it happened in somebody else's life and it's given as a warning to keep you from entering into the thing. And you can take even the negative experiences, the judgment, the punishments that happen to other people and you can praise God that you've been redeemed from these things and it'll serve as a warning to you so that you don't enter into the same deal. So the Word of God is super positive and your hope is going to be linked directly Two, how much of the Word of God you know and how much you know what you know, how much you understand it and are applying it in your life. So it goes on to say in the next verse, in verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He was 99 years old when the Lord finally appeared unto him the final time and told him that in the next year, your wife is going to conceive. And he was 100 years old 
when Isaac was born. Sarah was 91 years old. And she was long past the time that she could have children. And it said that he did not consider or focus, study, think about his own body. And that's one of the reasons he was able to stay positive. That's one of the reasons that he was able to continue to believe God when, when all hope that they could ever have children was gone. The reason he did it was because he long since had learned to discipline his mind and he was focused only on the promise of God. God had told him that if you can count the stars or count the grains of sand, so shall your seed be. And he was focused on that and he was not focused on the deadness of his body, the impracticality of it, the impossibility of it. I tell you, what I'm saying is profound. And one of the reasons that most people today are not experiencing the power of God manifest in their life is because they are living exactly opposite this. They will consider everything, every reason that it can't work. Let me just say that if you were a hundred years old and if God told you that you were going to have a child and your wife was 91, how would you respond to a word from God like that? You, I could guarantee you a large segment of you would immediately go to the doctor and get a test to see if you still are capable of having children. And then you would go on the Internet and you would look up and find out what is the, the, you know, the oldest person who's been documented to have children. And you would look at all of these natural things and you would consider all of these things that went contrary to your faith. And then you would wonder, God, why is it that I'm struggling to believe? It's because we consider everything else. We consider the word of a doctor, the word of the internet, the word of a friend to be equal to or greater than the word of God. And if you still tried to believe and say, God, I'm struggling to believe this. Can you help me? And he says to you again that so shall your seed be. Then you'd say, God, why is it so hard? It's because you don't do what Abraham did. You consider all of the things contrary. And after you've accumulated this huge mountain of unbelief, then you try and overcome it with your faith. It's a lot easier to do it the way Abraham did. Abraham was so focused on God for at least 25 years. He had been saying, so shall my seed be as numerous as the stars as plenteous as the grains of sand on the seashore. Every time somebody asked him, what's your name? He says, I'm the father of many nations. For 25 years, he had been confessing that he was the father of many nations, even when he didn't have any children. And because he had said it, because he had seen it, because he had been persuaded, he embraced it, he spoke these things out of his mouth. Then when the time came and the promise came, he didn't even consider how impossible it was. Let me just say this. I could be a great man of faith. You could be a great man or woman of faith if you never considered anything differently. But the problem is most of us consider all of this other stuff and then only after we've assembled mountains of unbelief do we try and overcome it with our little mustard seed amount of faith. I'm telling you, if you want to stay positive in a negative world, you're going to have to get to where you are focused on God and you do not let the unbelief of this world refocus your attention onto other things. You're going to have to stay focused on God.